Okay, so um, it's not that I want to look at it in an alternative way. I want to look at it from a different angle in a way that I believe is complementary to the framework in which uh, I normally address and look at Sukkot. I want to look at Sukkot as a, uh, to begin with, its, its temporal placement in terms of Torah. Right, so that it, it comes in Torah after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, and it's true that in the most basic aspect, it's a, it's a uh, harvest holiday. Right? That's essentially the way that the Torah brings it. And we'll, we're going to look at the Pesukim. And I'd like to uh, spend some time on text tonight. Yeah, we're going to look at uh, some text a little bit more than just a glance at a makor, if you're willing to kind of, you know, have some patience with me to do that, so that we can kind of have a better sense of things. Of course, in its basic element, it is a harvest holiday, and so it essentially comes uh, at the time of harvest, which makes the most sense. But of course, it's also coming uh, in the same month as Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And even Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when we look at it in the Torah, it is severely stripped down from what it is that we've established them to be, you know, in terms of how it is that the Hachamim have developed it, and the Bedin, Sandrin has developed it. But all of those things are developments that are, I believe, are not only, ar- they're not arbitrary, right? They, they certainly have some elements of the roots and philosophy of the days, even though the days themselves might be quite stark in terms of how it is that they're presented in the Torah, right? They're bare bones, yeah, if you will, as is much of, uh, you know, the mitzvot of many of the mitzvot of the Torah are bare bones to begin with anyway. They're not given with a lot of meat on them in the Torah. We essentially provide a great deal of the layering and, uh, and development and, and so on that, that we now have with regards to the mitzvot and, and what is they mean for us on a national level. So I want to look at it, you know, in the historic sense, in, in the temporal sense. We cannot help but recognize that we experience Sukkot after Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in their modern settings, which essentially means that I go through a time of Teshubah, right? I go through a time of, of Deen between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And those are inter, intermingled, right? So if I recognize that I'm assessing myself in order to be able to question my standing, both in terms of my own self and before God, I am engaging in judgment. I am engaging in self-assessment and judgment, which essentially what judgment is. If judgment is not assessment, what is it? Right? It's essentially looking at what something is and determining it as such. Um, and that coincides, obviously, with Teshubah and the return to one's genuine, authentic self and, and, uh, and why that's important in front of God is because it's what God created us to be. Right? Um, so to see Sukkot from that perspective I think is also important, right? So when I say that I've looked at Sukkot in terms of it being a transient Mo'ed, or not that the Mo'ed itself, I mean, everything's transient, but that it is a Mo'ed that looks at and focuses on transients, that's its initial underpinnings, but I want to be able to look at it from a different angle and where what we layer on top of that is this question, right? How does Sukkot come within the month of Tishri following um, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur with regards to our involvement in that endeavor of Deen and Teshubah, uh, essentially self-assessment, mutual assessment with God, and return to the authenticity of ourselves. Um, 
And I don't think that that's arbitrary. In other words, I think that Sukkot, uh, although it comes at the close of Kippur, in other words, Kippur closes and we, we come into Sukkot, I've said many times that Kippur is not a day from a Teshuvah perspective, nor from a Deen perspective, that expects us to solve our problems on the day. It simply expects us to acknowledge realistically our problems on the day and to state them before God. The question is, once we've done that and we have essentially opened ourselves to a path of Teshuvah, it would make sense that um, Sukkot should have some relationship to that. Yeah. And so what I want to suggest tonight is that I think that Sukkot does have a relationship to that on whatever level. Um, and I'd like to entertain that, that approach with you. Yeah. Um, and what I'm saying, of course, is suggestion. It always is. It's always suggestion. I'm never coming and saying this is the emphatic truth you know, of what is Sukkot is. But I think that it is a substantial suggestion. And of course, happy to hear your, your thoughts on it. So it's, it would seem to me that Sukkot is a transitionary time. From what to what? It's a transitionary time from a period of intense, at least on a national, what it's meant to be, right? Intense assessment, right? Uh, questions of authenticity and teshuvah into living our daily lives, right? So we, we almost remove ourselves from our daily doings on Rosh Hashanah, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's a time in where at least the Hachamim say that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is present with us in ways that he is not normally present, right? Whatever it is that that means on a, on a logistical level. Don't ask me these, these uh, God logistics right now. We're going to deal with it as the way that the, the Hachamim presented. And that essentially is that the, the interaction between God and Israel during that time, during those 10 days, is one of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's openness to engaging with us in mutual assessment and return to authenticity before him. And Harabam Posek Lehalacha, this, this point, right? That, uh, that even though it's always good to engage with HaKadosh Baruch Hu in supplication and return and Teshubah and so on, Ba'aserat Hayamim in the 10 days, says Harambam, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, HaTeshuvah Ve'atza'aka, he calls it, right? Return and calling out to God. And he speaks about it as a unit. He doesn't speak about it in the plural. He doesn't say Teshuvah Ve'atza'aka Yafim him. He says Teshuvah Ve'atza'aka Yafahi, which is interesting, right? This, this module, this, this, this uh, you know, this... Uh, uh, a synergistic engagement, right, that we have called Teshuvah B'Tza'aka, that we put out to HaKadosh Baruch was always beautiful. But It's more so. Why? Turn to HaKadosh Baruch when he's there, when he's engaging in that capacity, come to him when he's close. And so there is this, right? We have this understanding. Whatever it is that it means on, on the various levels that it means, on the most basic level, it means that it is open to us in ways that it is not normally open to us on the rest, in the rest of the year. And that being the case, we engage as such. And so if you have, you know, uh, the king, as it were, right, coming to be in your midst for 10 days, it definitely, you know, changes your daily behaviors, right? You're, you're just not running around about your life as usual. And with the close of Ne'ilah of Kippur, right, with Kippur's close, that closes. 
And that's why I was talking on, in my shiur on, uh, on Yom Kippur about the urgency of Vidui, right? That we start, God forbid, we should choke and die before it starts. And then we have the urgency of it closing. And, you know, this, this crazy element of, of definite urgency around Kippur. So when it stops, when it ends, you wake up the next morning and it's uh, just back to normal again, which is, which is, you know, a little awkward. And so there is, there is, I'm suggesting a transitionary period. And that essentially is Sukkot, right? So in the same way that transience is transitionary, <laughs> you know, from either being here and then not here, right? You know, there's just this mode of movement, you know, there's a movement that we go through. It itself is a transitionary time. Sukkot is a time essentially that we move from being, having our, our, uh, awareness heightened in terms of introspection, question of personal authenticity and placement of life, to getting back into the daily grind. And Sukkot gives us this kind of transitionary point. And it gives us the tools, the, the trappings, if you will, to do this. And so that's what I want to look at uh, a bit and understand then how that plays into our Teshuvah. Because if we genuinely, and I'm saying that Yom Kippur is a time of Teshubah where we acknowledge what needs to be done, the appropriate procedure after that is to get to work and start addressing what it is that needs to be done. So the first things that I want to show you in terms of the source sheets are just the fact that I find it quite interesting that, that Sukkot actually is a tra- it's like, you know, it's the it's transitionary point uh, twice both in the individualistic uh, uh, life of the Avot, and I don't know what I've done. Hello, okay. And in um, the, how do I close this? This? Oh boy, what's going on? Okay. It's so not a Mac, I'm telling you. It's like so not. It's so counterintuitive. Here we go, okay. There we go. There we are. There they are. Okay. No, I don't want to share that. Yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Takes me a, a touch of time just to get used to it, but I, I'm, I'm not, thank God, inept. All right. Not saying you were saying that I was. All right. So what I want to look at, first of all, it seems that it is the first port of movement for, of growth both for the Avot and for the Am. So when we look at Yaakov Abinu, right, his time in Lavan's house, he comes out of Lavan's house and he's immediately hit with the Arsav problem. And he has to address that first, right, before he even gets out of the gate. But once he can actually get on with his life, which is what he says, he goes, when am I going to do Liul Beti? Matai, I say Liul Beti. When am I going to take care of me and my household? I've been taking care of your father's household, telling the wives, right, all of these years, it's time for me to actually focus on my own household, even though his entire household was built in his father-in-law's house. Um, and so Yaakov leaves, and the first place that he goes is Sukkot. It's interesting. I'm just pointing that out. Pointing that out. And I find it interesting as well that when we leave Mitzrayim, when we leave Egypt, uh, the first place we go is Sukkot. We come out of the house of bondage. We're moving on our path to freedom. And the first place we go is Sukkot. It's peculiar. It's, you know, it's an interesting thing just to point out. I'm not saying anything more about it. I just think that's very, very interesting, right? 
there's a very minor pattern there. There he builds a house. There's a whole thing about that, which we're not going to get into tonight. That's a whole other element of Sukkot, right? I think it's quite remarkable that in Sukkot, he builds a house. And this is, of course, very important to recognize because none of his predecessors built houses. This is, this is a, a highly irregular act that Yaakov should build a house. What application? Right? Abraham lives in a tent. Yitzhak lives in a tent. And it's not because they don't know how to build. And it's not because they can't afford it. We are told explicitly that Abraham is an exorbitantly wealthy man. They build the Tower of Babel, right? It's not like they can't build houses. They, they insist on not living in houses. So of all places that Yaakov should finally decide to build a house is in Sukkot. And then it says, But for his animals, he made Sukkot, right? In Sukkot, which may have some reason why they call it Sukkot. Did the Sukkot come before the Sukkot or did the Sukkot come before the Sukkot? We have no idea. Whatever it is. And then uh, B'nai Israel, when they leave Egypt, says, Vaikaz in Parashat B'Shalach at the beginning, as they're leaving in the big Cecil did be the mill Exodus scene. Vaikah Moshe et Atzmot Yosef and Mo. Moshe takes the bones of Yosef with him. Ki Israel Why? Because Yosef made everybody swear to take his bones with him. Of course, nobody remembered to take his bones except for Moshe. So Moshe takes him because he made B'nai Israel swear. Take my bones out. Where do they go? Well, who said they were in Sukkot? Well, obviously, they went from Goshen to Sukkot. So it's a very interesting point, right? That there is, it's, it's like the first port. Before they get off, you know, into the world, they stop at Sukkot. That's all I'm saying about it. And it seems to me that it's significant that before we get off and get into the world, right, we stop at Sukkot. And we spend a week there, essentially. Now, when we look at Sukkot in the Torah in terms of its temporal rather than, rather than its uh, geographical uh, expression, right? because there's always, it's always space-time. Yeah? So there's Ohil uh, Mo'ed and then there's Mo'ad Hashem that are both space and time. And the Torah constantly looks at space-time mutually. So when we look at Sukkot in terms of its time, this is what it tells us. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you harvest and gather the produce of the land, you shall have this festival. Hog literally means this, you go in circles, right? You have this festival essentially where you dance in circles. First and eighth day of this period are to be Shabbat days. And on the first of those days, you are to take for yourselves these nice uh, bits of flora that you're supposed to have in your hands. And be happy, which is of course easy. Not a problem. Before you, the Lord your God, Shabbat Yamim for seven days. Not one day, seven days. And you shall have this as a celebration to God for seven days in the year. 
חוקת העולם לדורכם forever. בחודש השביעי תחוגו אותו, on the seventh month you celebrate this. Now, in that time, interestingly, right, this comes second, בסוכות תשבו שבעת ימים. Not only that, during those seven days, that is a harvest celebration, that you're supposed to grab some branches off a tree and a fruit and have it on the first day, it should also be that these seven days are celebrated and for all intents and purposes lived in a sukkah. They know what a sukkah is because it's always used. Every citizen of Israel needs to sit in these sukkot. During that time. Why? Because I want you to know during that time that this was an aspect of your exodus into freedom. That when I took you out of Egypt, I had you sit in these things on the way. I'm God. Right? That's basically a signature for this command, you know. Love God, right? That's basically what he's saying. So this is what it is. So what are, what are the components that we have over here? The components that we have are, I need to hold branches on the first day. It's a seven-day period. It's a harvest holiday, right? There needs to be happiness the whole time, and I have to sit in the house. I have to sit in the Sukkot the whole time. That's what I've got. And that's all I've got. There's elsewhere in the Torah where it says you have to be only happy. Ach Something else. And then there's, of course, the korbanot that are supposed to be brought during the time. This is essentially the presentation of the Chag. This is it. So, I mean, what, 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 is it, what picture does that paint? What is the feel of this Chag? I'm asking you, what, what is the feel of the Chag? If you're looking at only what it is that's presented over here. You know, if I was an, a teacher in an old-fashioned classroom and I had a white, I would write these things out on the board. We've got harvest. We've got branches. We've got happiness, we've got huts, we've got a seven-day period, right? What, what, what does this conjure for you? If you are, you're, th- you're hearing this, right? And you're thinking, okay, so this is what we're going to have to do, yeah? Right now, you also have to pretend, sorry for one minute, you also have to pretend that you're agricultural people. Right? It's a small caveat, <laughs> yeah? That you live by the rhythm of the earth, right? You live by the times and seasons of the earth. Harvest holiday is big, yeah. But it's also if you're living in the northern hemisphere, which you are, when you hear these things, it's also a dangerous time because there's not a lot of food that's coming out for the next several months. It's also going to be very cold. It's also going to be short days, long nights, yeah. And that's going to be the way that it is for quite some time until Pesach, basically, which is also an agricultural time. So what is this? So there's a great deal of gratitude, right? And the fact that I have bounty, that I can be happy with it. Yeah, and so on. But what's the hut thing? And what's the branches thing? Well, you'll remember, of course, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing Yom Kippur into it, because, of course, if we are Israel, we don't n- not realize that Yom Kippur is like a few days just before this, right? 
But at this time, what was going on in Yom Kippur? You were fasting. There, you weren't doing kol nidre or, or you know, buying seats in synagogue or trying to sit there or deal with all. You were the kohen gadol was busy, and you were hoping that he was getting it right, not dying, and you, you were fasting, but you knew that you were deprived. What the the issue of kippur? And I, let's look at Yom Kippur. Okay, I brought it here because it's important to contrast because they're so close in time with each other. Yom Kippur seems to be quite different. Yom Kippur is very nitimit nafshotechem. Yom Kippur, and all the word inui means deprive. Right? It's not tzom. Tzom is a fast. Inui is deprivation. One of the elements of deprivation is not eating, but there's more. Yeah? The Torah is telling us here, and it's one of the very few places where the Torah, it's the only place really, where the Torah commands us to deprive ourselves. And what that means is not don't it's not don't eat pork. I mean that's not a deprivation as far as the Torah is concerned. It's just saying don't eat this. It's saying don't eat. Right? Basic human needs are we're told from the Torah. It's the only place where the Torah tells us the basic human needs are to be restricted for you on this day. So juxtapose the two, right? You know, what is the movement between this one day and where I am depriving myself? to this period of time in where there's bounty, there's harvest, there's, there's happiness, there's sitting outside in a hut for seven days, right? I'm not living in my house, right? Interesting, you know, Yaakov is, is moving away from Sukkot in Sukkot, whereas all of his, 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 uh, you know, his predecessors were very Sukkot-oriented people, right? Abraham is insisting not, specifically not interested in living in a house. Are you with me? I'm, I'm, I'm just asking you to come with me. I'm sorry, I'm not doing all of the work for you tonight. Uh, maybe I should, but I'm just, I, I want you to think about this a little bit. Yeah. There's some kind of acknowledgement from God that we do require food, we do require the harvest. God says, I recognize that and go and take your harvest and rejoice in the fact that you have food, even though five days ago you had to deprive yourself of that. I, I acknowledge that you can't live like that. I think, that's, I think that's a beautiful point. I think that it's more than an acknowledgement. I think it's God saying, this is how you live. In other words, you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to rejoice in the, in the simple uh, interactions and bonuses that you get from the earth's output, right? You should be happy just from holding the branches that I told you to take. You should be happy sitting in the hut that I'm telling you to sit in because you're a human being. And these are your simple joys. And it is important when we go into the regular living of our lives to acknowledge that. So I do think that, that is a very important part of it. And so I've been known to say, you know, uh, very, very often that the Sfaradim end Yom Kippur with go enjoy dinner. That's the last line of the prayer. There's a, there's a Midrash in, uh, in Kohelet Rabbah that says that on Moza'e Yom Kippur, a bat kol, right? Whatever bat kol means, right? There's this, there's this ethereal voice, essentially, right? That is calling out, saying, Lech echol mecha. Go eat with joy your bread. That's after the fasting of Kippur. Don't just go have dinner. Go enjoy your dinner. Go rejoice in the fact that this is your experience of life. And that, yes, on Yom Kippur, you are absolutely meant to realize that you cannot live like this. 
And that when you realize that you can't live like this, you understand and appreciate how beautiful and meaningful these basic human physical experiences are for you in this life. But that's only the initial step, right? So when God says, be happy, yeah, uh, well, what if I'm not? Well, that's a big problem, actually. It's, it's, we're going to see that it's a very, very, very big problem, actually. We're going to see what, what it is that the problem is with that. But yes, there is this, there is this, there is this just basic acceptance of the world on its terms on Sukkot. And where I realize that my life is about this harvest. And that's how I've lived. That's how I live. That's what my life is about at the end of the day. And the amazing thing is, is that it still is about that. We just don't realize it. Because we're so removed from the harvest. But chas v'shalom, there's no harvest. And you feel it. You, you know, it's frantic. What do you mean there's no tomatoes at the supermarket? You know, or there's a shortage of mangoes or you know, whatever it is in winter. What is this, it's important. What do you mean? It's appalling. How could there be a shortage of mangoes in winter? In any case, um, what I want to do to look at this a little bit is to actually look at this, what it is that we read towards the end of Kippur, which is the book of Yonah, which is a peculiar book to read. It's a peculiar book anyway, on its own, but to read it on Yom Kippur is a bit strange. Because it's clear that it's obviously talking about a Teshuvah story, right? But it's almost incidental to the story. It was more that we're looking at the Teshuvah of Yonah rather than the Teshuvah of the people of Nineveh. And the truth is, is that even if we're looking at the Teshuvah of the people of Nineveh, of all of the Teshuvah stories in the Tanakh, and there are. I mean, it's not like you don't have Teshuvah stories in the Tanakh. You have some pretty significant ones. This is the one that we choose to read on Yom Kippur. What I'd like to suggest is that we read this one on Yom Kippur because it's specifically oriented to this issue. And that is, what does it mean to be a human being and be able to accept the genuine truth of that existential reality? And that as an essential part of our Teshuvah. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the end of the book with you. If I can, right? that's what I'm saying. I'd like to do a little bit of reading with you. So let's have a look at the at the. I'm, I'm assuming that you know the general story, okay? What happens at this point is, Yonah is angry. He is upset, angry, resentful, bad, bad, bad mood. Right? He's in bad mood, and it's not just because he's been inside of a you know a whale or whatever fish or whatever you want to call it for however three days and nights. He's angry because the people of Nineveh did tshuva. And that he was sent to do this. He, you know, he had to be the agent of this entire thing. And he just thinks the whole thing's a Mickey Mouse game. And it's silly. And uh, you know, they don't understand what Teshuvah really is. If they were me, they would know what Teshuvah really is. And I can't believe that you're sending me to talk to these people even. You know. And the poetic justice of the end of the story is so beautiful. Because... God has a very interesting personality here in this book. He's taking on a, you know, a very Jewish, rhetorical, sarcastic tone with Yonah, and where he keeps asking him these rhetorical questions. So take a look. Vayera, vayera, Yonah, ra'a gedola. 
it was this horrible evil that Yonah was experiencing. And he was incensed, right? Yihar means he, his nose flared, right? He was very angry. And so he's standing in prayer before God. He has audience with God. And he says to him, This is exactly what I was talking about. When you told me to go and I didn't want to go. This is the reason why I want to run away in Ashish in the first place. Because I knew that this would be the exact scenario. I knew I was going to go in there. And they were going to go, everything was going to be completely turned over. And it was all going to be like, oh, look how good they are. And how wonderful they are. And it's going to look so simple. And I know that it's not simple. And I don't want you to resent me to these things. And that's why I was running away. And he's talking to God. And he says, Yadati. What do you think? I don't know that you're the most merciful entity on the, in the entire existence of everything. You're the most merciful thing. And I know that. He said, just, could you please kill me? I just want to die, please. So he says to him, He goes, I can't handle it anymore. I, I can't live in this world anymore. I can't live with these platitudes and this, you know, these, 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 these you know, uh, you know, artificial, meaningless gestures. And you, you, you keep doing this. And I don't know, whatever it is that you have going on in your, I don't want to be here anymore. This is what Yonah basically says to HaKadosh Baruch says, I don't want to be in the story anymore. I don't want to be in it anymore. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu is great. So God says to him, no, you don't want to be here anymore? Are you, are you upset, Yonah? So you can see he's like poking him. Are you, are you upset? And he says, uh, he doesn't even answer him. Right? That's God's answer to him. Again, there's like this, this cynical, this kind of like sarcastic, not cynical, but sarcastic rhetoric. Where Kadosh Baruch who sees that Yonah is having a temper tantrum. And his only he doesn't engage him. He just says, oh, are, you, are you upset? I could, because I couldn't tell. So Yonah leaves the city. Oh, how interesting, a sukkah. He decides to make himself a sukkah outside the city. And he's using it as shade because otherwise he's quite vulnerable to the elements. you know. So he sets himself up this little uh, protective you know, hut. It gives him a little bit of shade from the elements. And he, he like looks at the city from afar to see like what's going on with Ninveh. Because he didn't want to be in there. He didn't want to be there. <clears throat> so God decides that he's going to bring out a nice shrub for Yonah. A natural development in which it provides him this lovely shade yeah, in this situation. And it nicely grows, covers Yonah. To, to cover him. To save him from his horrible situation. Right? So God gives him a little bit of uh, respite. And Yonah is thrilled with this bush. 
that God has brought out for him to cover him from the sun. Now, pause for a minute, okay? Do you get, this is, we're talking about, what is Yonah upset about? Right? Yonah is upset that he's been sent to have to go talk to this heathen nation, right? And where God's deciding that he wants to be able to forgive them because of their cheap uh, gestures of, of return. Yonah can't handle it to the point that he's ready to die. I don't want to be in the world anymore because this is all bogus, right? The entire thing. I'm done. And all of a sudden, he's got this situation where God brings him like this little bush and Yonah gets so excited from the bush and he's so happy, right? Think about this. What's he happy about? What is he happy about? It's just a serendipitous thing that happens in the earth that for him is very meaningful. And why is it very meaningful for him? I'll tell you why it's very meaningful for him. Because he's a human being with flesh and blood outside. And this is something that's lovely for a human being who's stuck outside in a relatively hot climate. Are you with me? You would like it too if this happened. And he loves this. So then God brings a tolat. He brings some whatever reptile that, uh, or whatever kind of, you know, uh, whatever it is, a worm, whatever you, want, whatever you want to call it, right? Some pesky creature that eats this thing. And he wakes up, it's gone <laughs> the next morning. Yeah. Starts to really, you know, the sun is beating down. And God decides we're going to really turn up the heat on Yonah today, right? Uh, to the point that he, he faints because it's so hot out there. Again, he's just, please kill me. He just, he wants to die. He says, it's just, it's better for me to be dead than to live any more of this nonsense. So then again, goes to him, goes, why don't you you, you upset, Yonah. You're, you're angry, aren't you? And Yonah says to him, He goes, yes, I am angry to the point of death. And here HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, well, Yonah, I, you know, I'd like to point something out to you if you don't mind. I've been thinking about this. And what I'd like to say is, you know, I've been thinking about it. You know, you were so interested in that kikayon that I brought you. But you actually had nothing to do with, interestingly. Had nothing to do with you. It just kind of came out. You were in the right place at the right time. And it ended up presenting to you beautifully. It was overnight. It was there and gone. And you know what that made me think? And I shouldn't worry about this massive city, Nineveh. There's over 100,000 people in the city. They have no idea what they're doing, Yonah. They haven't developed yet to the point that they're able to listen to Oprah or Esther Perel or whatever it is that people are Jung or whatever, or Freud. They haven't gotten to that point yet, okay? They don't know what the heck they're doing. 
There's over 100,000 people in the city. They haven't developed to getting talk shows yet and being able to, to study in university the way that you expect them to. And I should worry about them. And by the way, and this is the most important part, there are a ton of animals in that city, Yonah. The end. It's an amazing book because this is the only book of the Tanakh that ends in a, in a rhetorical question. He has nothing to say. There's nothing to say to that because he was owned, basically, by God. Hold on. Yeah? So what, what happens is that Yonah is basically, this is the dialogue. Kadosh Baruch Hu says to him, goes, look, I get that you're a prophet and you worked very hard for that. I understand that. And I understand that when you live in profit levels, you don't have patience sometimes for cities like Nineveh that are basically a bunch of bipeds that have self-organized in an efficient way, but not much more. And that I'm sending you, Yona, you, where who are we kidding? What you hold, Yona, between your ears is the entire universe and its secrets. You talk to me. They are barely the same species as you. And I've asked you to go there and to talk to them. And I know that it upsets you that that's what I've done. But, you know, you really enjoyed that little bush that had uh, you had uh, yesterday. And at that moment, Yona, you were nothing more than a, a uh, conglomerate of bones and flesh and plasma that was being beaten by the elements of this hostile planet from which you emerged. And there was this basic respite that came out of the earth for you. And you had this simhagedola. And when it went away, you couldn't even manage. And that's because you are a, an animal. You are a, an earthen, dirt-ridden animal that happens to have lifted yourself from the dirt to a point that you speak to God. But you have not detached yourself from the dirt, nor will you ever. And you got so interested in that, you think, I shouldn't be concerned with this city of over 100,000 people, and not to mention a ton of animals. Where do you think you came from, if not that city? Or a city like it? Where do you think you have the platform upon which to stand that allowed for you to pursue speaking to God? If not from the cities like Nineveh that allowed for you to be able to climb to the stars, do you think that they are no longer relevant? That they are not subsumed inside you? And that is exactly the way the book ends. It's that question. And it rings. And with that question, we step out of Yom Kippur and into Sukkot. And of course he he builds himself a Sukkot. What else are you going to build yourself as a basic human on this earth? And you need basic shade, basic 
basic protections from the world. So what the Torah says to us is when you, with your interactions with the earth, achieve produce and you reap that produce and you bring it in, that is as human as you get. And so for seven days, I want you to rejoice in your humanity and live in the earth as it is in basic terms, accept the earth on its own terms because you are speaking, thinking earth. And I want you to take branches from trees and a piece of fruit, and I want it to be meaningful to you. And when you think about it, what other mitzvah do we have that is so raw and unmanufactured? It's baked. Or matzah. Do you realize what we have to go through just to get a matzah? <laughs> you, if it was picking a piece of a wheat stalk out of the ground and you know, walking around with it, I could understand. But there's nothing that comes close. Everything else goes through such immense stages of manufacture. And what do we have for sukkah? Sukkah you can make out of anything. You grab, according to the Mishnah, solid goren vayekin, right? You know, just take whatever's left over from the harvest and throw it on the roof. The Gemara, by the way, talks about sukkah as being, it's a, it's a mitzvah she'en bo chisaron kis. <laughs> it's a mitzvah that doesn't cost anything. I haven't lived in hand yet. <laughs> it doesn't cost, what is it? You, whatever you get, whatever's around, throw it together and you get a hut. I mean, you know, people used to know how to do this once upon a time. That's it. And that's simha. And you should be samer because you will simply accept things as they are. You will accept your life as it is. And that will be the beginnings of your growth to the stars. But if you don't remember that you are planted on earth, that you come from this earth, and I don't just mean remember, you know, once upon a time, that it is you. This is what you are. That this is part of your humanity. Teshubah is not an option. Nor is speaking to God an option, because it then denies what you are, and it's what I—it's what you are. It's what I made you. So you know, you see these amazing things. This beautiful pasuk says, "Your tzedek, your righteousness, is like the high mountains. Mishpatecha tehom raban. Your judgments are like the depths, the the, the great depths, right? Adam God saves man and animal." Man and beast. Achamim say, how should you read that pasuk? Adam bizchut behema toshiadonai. Humans are saved in the zechut of the animals. The animals are just nice. They're these lovely creatures. They don't do anything. We're the ones that mess everything up. And if we mess things up, at least we have the zechut of sharing the planet with the animals. And because God likes them, he keeps us around. It's an amazing point. This concept of not being able to speak to God without completely embracing your earthy humanity is expressed in Moshe Rabbeinu, with the greatest Navi. There's a beautiful line in, in the Gemara in, in Holim, in where uh, this people of a, of a town asked one of the Hachamim, uh, you know, these interesting questions that people ask when you visit. You know, Moshe mina Torah minayin. You know, where, where in the Torah do we see the existence of Moshe as an entity? It's not a really a crazy question because Harambam talks about Moshe as an entity. 
He says, Me'avat Hashem otanu mishbuato shenishba l'Abraham avinu in Hilchot Avodah Zarah. He says, you know, because he loves us so much and because he swore to Abraham avinu, Asa Moshe Rabbeinu. He made this Moshe Rabbeinu thing, right? And he, and he sent him to us. Yeah? So they ask, where is Moshe in the Torah? And he answers, Bishigam Hubasa. There's a pasuk here in Bereshit. You know, I don't think I'm going to keep these guys around for nine centuries anymore. I thought that maybe nine century lifespans might help them. I don't think it's a good idea. On second thought, we're going to try. That was that was the beta. Uh, you know, we're going to go to a different mode. It didn't work very well. I'm just going to do uh, give or take 120 years. Why, after all, Bishigamu Basar? I mean, after all, they are just flesh. I mean, we, we can't treat them like angels, you know, like these, you know, these uh, immortal entities. 120 years is enough, right? And of course, we know that's the amount of years that Moshe Rabbeinu lived. So the Hachamim say we learn it from the pasuk there, where it says Bishigam Basar. Here they use a little gematria magic, right? This is an example of how the Hachamim use gematria. They don't build entire drashot out of gematria. They build kintings. So the word Bishigam is the same gematria as Moshe. Obviously, the Mem and the Sheen are there. And the hey, which is five, is two and three, Bet Gimal, and that's Moshe. Moshe is fundamentally flesh. The great prophet who had to cover his face because it shined when he spoke to the people. They couldn't look at him. His fundamental, Moshe Minat Torah, his fundamental existence is Basar. He is flesh and blood. And it is only because he's flesh and blood that he talks to God. And so you see that this becomes the fundamental vision, right, of our people, because our forefather Yaakov, who is called Yisrael, has a vision that changes his entire life. It completely defines his life, as a matter of fact. And that vision, of course, is the Sulam Mutzavarza, right, this uh, ladder ziggurat, if you want to be uh, archaeologically technical about it, right? The stairway to heaven. And what is unique about it? It's told, we're told that by a halom in this dream, there's a sulam mutzav arza. It is mutzav arza. Mutzav arza means it's firmly standing on the earth. And from the earth extends to the shaman. Extends to the heaven. This, incidentally, is the first time in the Torah that we hear about the Shamaim since Bereshit Bara Elohim et HaShamayim. It's never mentioned again, really, in any significant terms. The only time that is mentioned is when it's borrowed for the Rakia. So God calls sky heaven. It's really just sky, but, you know, he borrows the heaven word for it. But notice, we never go back there. Bereshit Bara Elohim et HaShamayim et HaAretz. And that's all we hear about. We never go back to the Shamaim until here. And what's at the top of the heaven? Well, God's there. At the top of the ladder. But the bottom of the ladder is firmly planted on earth. And there is this continuum. There's traffic, right? What we know about this ladder is that there's constant traffic on the ladder between the two areas. And where does the traffic begin? Where does the traffic begin? doesn't say here. I didn't count it for you. You know how, where, it, where it begins? What's Psukim? You know Psukim, no? Huh? 
Right. So where are they starting? They're starting from here. This is the place, point of origin to get there. It's not that they're starting up there. This is who we are. It's all over the place. And that was one of the major issues of Yonah. And if we are going to be able to genuinely engage in Teshubah, that is true, right? If we're on Yom Kippur, then we must know on Yom Kippur that we cannot live that way. And we cannot live in Yom Kippur because of the flesh that we are. And so we immediately emerge from there and we get into a sukkah. Because it's in the sukkah that we own our physicality. We own our dirt. Right? That, is, that makes us up. And from there we emerge. So it's an amazing thing because on Sukkot, it's not just that we only look at the dirt part. We also look at the top of it. Because Sukkot and the time of Sukkot is meant to be a time in where we, we, we tap into the, the reality of Ruach HaKodesh. Of being able to be either a Navi or a Navi in training. You know, as they say about Klal Yisrael, if they're not prophets, they're prophets in training. And that's who we're, all of us. Why? Because we're all aiming ultimately to be able to talk to God. So it says that they would have these, this huge celebration in the time of the Beit HaMikdash called the Simchat Beit HaShoeva. It was a very special celebration. And it was done in the Mikdash, in the Azara. And the only ones who were able to actually party at this huge event were the Hachamim and the Anshe Maaseh. So it says, Rambam, uh, when he writes the Halakha, the Simhat Beta Shoeba, here, he says, The general populace who were the earth people, which is literally what Amea Aret means, right? The earth people, they didn't participate in this. Not anybody who wanted to get in and dance could get in and dance in the circle. There were bouncers. There were people who made sure that you didn't get, if you weren't, if you didn't belong in the, in the circle, you didn't go. The great Hachamim of Israel, the Rosh Hashibot, the Sanhedrin, the Hasidim, the Zikanim, the elders, and Shema Aseh, the people who were people of action, people of deeds, people who made something of their lives, people who emerged beyond just being earth. They they were the ones who danced and played the music and partied right at this time. They did it everybody else who had not yet emerged from the earth or lifted themselves to start climbing up to the stars, so to speak, watched. They observed what it looks like to be a human who lives in the continuum between the earth and the heavens, between Shamayim and Aretz. And so it says in Simhat Bet the says the Yerushalmi, why did they call this Simhat Bet which means the drawing festival? Drawing what? Drawing water, right? They did, they called it Simhat Bet not because they were drawing water, but because Shisham Shu'avim Ruach HaKodesh. Because in that place, you would access Ruach HaKodesh, you would draw the Holy Spirit, forget, forgive how that sounds in our, in our, in our the Ruach HaKodesh. Why? Because you were able to be a fully human in all of its sense, from top to bottom in that place. 
And so what did the Hachamim do in that place? I love this one. Aban Shimon Gamliel is one of my favorites. Hilel Azaken, when he was there, it says, I'm, not, I'm reading out, out of the text. Hilel Azaken, when he was there, he would say, If I'm here, everything is here. Really? Well, okay. Quite, quite confident. Right, but what Hilel Azaken is saying is that on this time at Sukkot, where we are owning our humanity, we are not, this is important because this is the next step. We're not just owning our generic humanity. We're also owning our unique humanity. Because something about being human is, it is profoundly unique. In other words, each and every human being is profoundly unique. It says Jung writes, he, I, I highly suggest that you write, read uh, his Undiscovered Self. It's a very thin book. It's, it's not an easy read, but it's a thin book. And in that, he he himself, he summarizes a lot, you know, his concepts of, you know, the archetypes and individuation and so on and so forth. And beautifully, beautiful po- point that he makes in this book is that if we are honest about human beings, there is no statistical realities about human beings. Because when you start to apply it to the individual human being, it breaks down. Obviously. And that's the truth, right? So the fact that there may be some shared traits that we can look at in terms of statistical realities, first of all, anybody on the edges of the, of the average statistics aren't part of it. And anytime that you try to apply those statistics to a particular individual, it's going to break down in some capacity. Why? Because we are utterly unique. And being that that's the case, that's also part of our humanity. And part of owning our humanity is not just our earthiness, and not just our the fact that we are of this earth, and that yes, there is joy for us if we stop fighting it in simply taking a piece of food and a branch and sitting in a hut. There's also the recognition that because I am a human being, a unique species on this planet, I am utterly unique. And therefore, my teshuvah is to achieve that uniqueness as an expression of my humanity. And so is there somebody more unique than Moshe Rabbeinu, the flesh individual? Who's more unique than Moshe Rabbeinu? When Hillel says, at the Simchat he is affirming, there is nothing else. What else is there but my personal life and experience that forms the entire experience of the world that I have? So this point I like because this is also a reinvestment in the earth. It says Ravan Shimon ben Gamliel when he was happy, when he was rejoicing, he would stick his two thumbs into the ground and then lean down in order to bow. It was very difficult to do this, right? Try it, probably smash your face. But he would go in, he would stick his thumbs and he'd ba- lean down and bow. Yeah? Why would he do that? It says nobody was able to do it. He had this, you know, he did this little magic trick. And he used to also, the, the, the ellipsis that I have over there says that he used to juggle torches in the, uh, yeah. In any case, what is the point of putting your thumbs in the ground? What is it, just like a nice spectacle? Well, first of all, thumbs make us human. Opposing thumbs. It's what separates us from the apes. They're uniquely human in, uh, development and he's taking that that's all you need it's like uh i think it was newton who said 
All I need is the thumb to prove to me God. Yeah, I'll find you the, the I forgot to put that on, but I, I yeah. yes, it. So what does he do? He takes his thumbs and he sticks them back into the earth, which is a profound expression of I, my humanity is of this earth and I will bow before God and kiss this earth, which is what he does, right? He goes down, he bows, and he would kiss and kiss the ground. That's phenomenal. I mean, it's phenomenal. These, these guys were not, these were not regular people. But they were full-fledged people. And therefore, on Sukkot, we not only are concerning ourselves with our humanity and the basic earthiness, and for that matter, the Ruach Kodesh, and our capacity to be aware of the stars, we're also concerned about the shared humanity. And that means every other human being on this planet. And the Hachamim say that the, the Pareh Hag, every day of Sukkot in the Beit HaMikdash, we bring a Musaf. And part of the Musaf was we started on the first day with 13 bulls and we would minus one every subsequent day. So it was 13 bulls on the first day, 12 on the next, 11 on the next, you get it, right? I say, why did we do that? It says in the Gemara, Marbi, they say, Lazar, parim it ends up being 70 of them. They're corresponding to the prototypical 70 nations of the earth. Obviously, the more nations of the you know, early prototypical nations. Amar Rabbi Yohanan, Rabbi Yohanan says, as a matter of fact, I mean, you know, they really messed things up when they destroyed the Beit Hamikdash for their own selves. Amar Rabbi Yohanan, yeah, we did. We used to bring korbanot for the goyim on Sukkot for humanity. When else would I do it if not Sukkot? when I'm recognizing my humanity and the shared humanity that I have with all other human beings on the planet. says it's a shame that they destroyed the Megdash. It was good for them. It was good. Right. So I'm conscious of time. And what I want to close with is this, is this last point. And that is that, and this is very important, there is a gradual growth of the human being from the earth to the stars, from being able to come from the earth to speaking to God. And that is our entire endeavor. And that's why Harabam says that, that the entire purpose of a human being is it's just to know God. But you need to know God. It's not just some academic concept. You need to know God. You, the unique you, that is a you and not him. That is the other that was created and achieved your own selfhood. So when Haramban says you need to know God how? By being human. You read through this. What is he telling you? I mean, you're reading, right, as I'm talking. Look at what it is that he's telling you to do. How do you know God? Well, I mean, you know, I guess when you're working, you should have in mind that you're working in order to be able to get things that you need in your physical life so that you can live well to know God. Because how are you supposed to know God if you're not well? That's how I know God. That's how you know God. You got to make sure to go to the gym or exercise, you know, go for a run because you are of the particular makeup that requires exercise in order for you to run well. 
And if you don't run well, how are you supposed to know God? Basically, all the harm, you know, you have to make sure to engage in sexual activity. Obviously, not illicit sexual activity in the appropriate way that the Torah allows for it, but you're also sexual beings. And that's also important. All of that is here, right? When you eat, you drink, you engage in sexual activity. You shouldn't just be looking to enjoy in these things. That shouldn't be the only thing that you have in these things. But rather, Make sure you're healthy. Why? Because you can't know God if you're not healthy. That's why Ambar says. He says that in many places. So what is he saying to you over here? He's saying the way to know God is to be fully human, a full functioning, healthy, holistic human. Be human. And in humanity is unique difference. And therefore the Hachamim say in the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, what is the Shebach and the Gedulah of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? The Shebach and Gedulah, the praise and greatness of God is that he created all of these human beings with all these same parts, so utterly unique. Everybody's got a voice box. Nobody sounds the same. Couple eyes and nose and a mouth, look around. It's like, you know, simple tools, simple basic ingredients, and the, the diversity is utterly astonishing. It's astounding. Adam What does humans do? We make these casts and we stamp them like cookie cutters, you know, we say in America. Everything's homogenous. Everything's made into the same thing. And what does HaKadosh Baruch Hu do? He has a stamp that's a human, right? Every human, you can tell a human from a non-human most of the time, most of the time, you know. He has this human, and look, he keeps stamping it every time. It's a whole new thing. It's amazing. You know what we learned from that, say the Hakamim? Every single person has to say, Bishvili Nivra Olam. You have to say, you must say that the world was created for you because there's no other you that you're unrepeatable. So obviously, you're not just some arbitrary mistake. You are created here for a purpose. There's a reason you're here, and the world is there at your disposal. You can't say anything but us, but Azma obviously must have been created for me. Isn't that reminiscent of what Hillel says? Of course, what else is there? Are you with me? Do you follow what it is that I'm saying? This is Sukkot. And so when we recognize that this is part of humanity, that this is what it means to be human, the path of Teshuvah is embracing in toto all that we are and all that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created us to be. And that is real Teshuvah. And it starts with just accepting. Pay attention to me. Just accepting your humanity. Just take a branch and a piece of fruit and sit outside and stop already with all of these paddings that you create around yourself and just accept, embrace you. And you know what? If you do this right, you'll be happy. Now be happy. Now get out there and be happy, at least for seven days. I know you'll be miserable the rest of the time, but at least seven days, be happy. Just be. And that, and part of that is embracing your uniqueness. And so I brought the Mesilai Sharim over here because beautifully what the Mesilai Sharim says when he talks about Hasidut, he says, look, 
He said, I want you to understand that when we talk about Hasidut, right, reaching Ruach HaKodesh, right, which is essentially what he's talking about, essentially, and how do you get to Ruach HaKodesh, right? What he says is, by the way, this is the very end of the book. <laughs> you know, he decides to put this in. He goes, by the way, I want you to know, He goes, Everybody has different ways of living. And the way that you are going to achieve Hasidut is not going to be the way that the guy sitting next to you is going to achieve Hasidut. The guy who happens to be somebody who literally is spending their entire life in study is not going to be the same life that a person is living, needing to work and, and you know, engage in whatever it, other things that he's doing. There's a ton of other variables and details in people's life that make their lives utterly unique, which means that the way that you do your things are going to be particular to you. It's not that the Hasidut in concept changes. It's just when it's overlaid into your life, of course, the pathway towards it is going to change. Since all circumstances constantly change and things are transient and transitional and variable and random and diverse, which is the essence of what sukkah is all about, there is not a one-size-fits-all. It is antithetical to humanity to approach it in a one-size-fits-all way. You can't approach anything meaningful in life in a one-size-fits-all way. So for you to look at your role model and say, I'm going to do what he or she does, is already a failure. You can have inspiration from them because you saw them do something in their way but you can't live their life. And that's part of what Sukkot is. It's coming to teach us. Okay, so I'm going to close with this nice little story from El Azad ben Pedat, but the shiur is essentially over. I'm just telling you a story, which is a nice little dessert piece. You know, I know everybody wants to go home. And that is, there's this beautiful, I'm going to say it outside, right? But you can look at it. So the Rabbi Azad ben Pedat was destitute. And he couldn't, he didn't have anything to eat. And he needed to let blood, because in those days they thought that, that was a way to heal. He goes to let blood, right? He had his blood, you know, he gave him a pint of blood or whatever it was, and they didn't, they didn't give him orange juice and a cookie, you know, afterwards. So he was trying to find something to eat. He found raw garlic, and he just ate that. And it was such a shock to the system that he fainted. And as he's fainted, right, he sees God. And God, and he sees, you know, I'm, since God is here, I'm going to take an opportunity and say, um, well, how long is it going to go on for? You know, I mean, how long do I have to live like this? I can't anymore. I mean, I literally cannot make ends meet. I can't feed myself. So Agadosh Baruch Hu says, well, El Azar, I mean, I'm sorry that it's, it's rough for you, but if you'd like, because you're a good man, I will... Uh, reboot the entire universe and maybe the next time around it'll be better for you now he's not laughing at him instead of saying look I could I could you know wire some cash into your account no says I could restart the entire world and maybe the next time it will be better for you and El Azar says all that and maybe the next time it'll be better for me you go, what about that? He says, well, look, can I ask you, have I lived most of my life or, or do I have most of my life to live? 
He says, you've lived most of your life. He goes, all right, don't bother. Okay. <laughs> so Baruch Hu says to him, he says, well, you know, Eliza, I really appreciate that you didn't make me start the world all over again. And because of that, I'm going to show you your chalit and olam abba. All of this is very significant. I'm getting into all of the stuff in the story, right? You can pick it apart on your own basis. So he shows him this vast, you know, these, these fountains and, and acres of land. Obviously, it's all, you know, translated into physical terms. But, the, you know, he's got a really nice, uh, you know, lot. In, in, and Elazar says, that's it? That's all I got? He goes, Elazar, what am I going to leave for your friends? I mean, I have given you all this. He goes, I'm not asking from somebody that doesn't have enough. You have plenty to he goes, Elazar, I'm going to shoot my arrows at you. You're being a little cheeky. And then he wakes up. I don't know, students. Why am I sharing this story and all of this? There's a lot of distraction in this story, which is all meaningful. But there's one thing that's very, very important to realize in this story. He says, you know, Elazar, I can start the world over again for you. From scratch. And maybe the next iteration will be good for you. And Elazar, cool, how do you like? It's all... A big question mark. I have to start the world all over again? Who knows what's going to be the pathways that it'll take? The myriad possibilities that it could end up, you know, running? Maybe the next time you'll end up being wealthy or you'll have at least a decent amount in your bank? All of that is a question, isn't it? The way that it goes represents it. What's the one thing that's not a question? He's not a question. His existence is a sure thing in this next world. He doesn't say maybe in the next world you'll be there. <laughs> no, that's Pashut. Your circumstances may be different in the next world. But the entity that is, whatever El Azar bin Pedat is, however he looks, he might have different parents, he might have different, totally different physical features, <laughs> whatever the case is. But this creation called in this particular point that's a real thing and what a tragedy it is if that entity doesn't become what it is that it is meant to become and we're the only ones who can do that all HaKadosh Baruch Hu can say is you'll be yeah so that's that I Be'ezrat Hashem will be here for Shabbat in Parashat Lech Lecha and obviously, that has a great deal to do with all of this. So we're going to unpack various aspects of this connected with the read. But that's my suggestion for Sukkot. Uh, so I, I think that it's worth uh, kind of mulling over and, and, and looking at and seeing what works and what doesn't and what holds up and what doesn't. But I think that it, it runs in terms of the uh, system fairly well. So I wish everybody a Chag Sameach. And uh, enjoy and be happy in this time. And uh, to everyone online, Rabot, All right, good. I'm going to stop share. I'm going to say goodbye to you. Yeah. Zoom.